We are in 2 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. As we've been going through uh, our story of uh, primarily David here, obviously, we've been reminded of some of his character traits and how they reflect similar traits that we might find in Christ, and that's because David is to serve as a type, and again, that's a fancy theological term, for example, but a type of Christ. And one of those traits that we've actually seen in him is his loyalty or his faithfulness. And we've seen that, not just his loyalty or faithfulness to God, but his loyalty and faithfulness to others. Some of the examples that come to mind, if you remember Abner, um, when Abner came to him, David was loyal and faithful to him. Um, If you remember the uh, men of Jabesh Gilead, the ones who had buried Saul, David expressed faithfulness and loyalty to them as well because of their faithfulness and loyalty to Saul. Well, today we're going to see another event in David's life, and it's also going to reflect David's commitment to loyalty, and it involves Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. So by the end of today, you should be able to pronounce that. Mephibosheth. One of the neat things about this event is that it involves three promises that we're going to see that David makes to Mephibosheth, but they foreshadow three promises that have been made to us by Christ, which is, I think, pretty cool. Now, the story of Mephibosheth here, um, it unfolds in five different locations in this book. I'm just going to mention the chapters. If you want, you can write them down. You can read them yourself. We'll reference some of them today. But the story actually begins in chapter 4, verse 4, where he's first mentioned, one verse. Then again in chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 13. Also chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 19, verses 24 through 30. And then in chapter 21, in one verse, that's verse 7 he's mentioned. So he's mentioned a number of places in this book, all little snippets. And you kind of have to read each one of those to put together the whole story of Mephibosheth. And so again, we're going to kind of highlight some of those today. We're going to do a lot of jumping around. There's a lot of passages to cover, even outside the book today. We're going to focus primarily here on chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. And then we'll, like I said, bounce around a little bit, do some reading elsewhere. But if you remember back in 1 Samuel, we had the story um, of David and Saul and their interaction that they had where Saul was constantly chasing David down. And there's this one particular scene in chapter 24 where David makes this remarkable promise to Saul. So if you would, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24 because that actually lays the foundation or the groundwork for what we're going to talk about today. So 1 Samuel chapter 24, I'm going to read a chunk of verses here, starting in verse 1. Let me go ahead and read that to you, chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of um, Engendi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men, all of Israel, and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. So David had gone into the cave to hide. Didn't expect that out of all the caves in the area, Saul would pick that one particular cave to now go in and essentially use the bathroom. So he goes in to relieve himself. So then we learn this. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. So David gets an opportunity to take Saul's life, but instead he kind of sneaks along the ground. While Saul is squatting, he goes up and he cuts off the very bottom of Saul's robe, which is where the king's insignia was. Verse 5, it came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. 
they would recognize that it was, would have been an insult to Saul. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, and stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of these men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you this day into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand? For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge you on me, or me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have not or what you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will they let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Now here's the thing. Look at verse 21. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home, and David and his men went to the, up to the stronghold. So basically what Saul does is he realizes David ultimately is going to become king in his place. And he begs David not to cut off his descendants. And the reason he would do that is because it was fairly standard. When a king took control of an area, he would kill all of the descendants of his rival. And Why would that be? So that they wouldn't rise up and claim their throne. Because any one of Saul's descendants, from the worldly viewpoint, had the right to inherit the throne, not David. And so any one of Saul's descendants could have risen up and said, I have a rightful claim to the throne. And so the kings would normally wipe them out to prevent that from happening. And Saul knows that. And so he tells David, don't cut off my descendants after me. And so David promises him that he actually will not do that. So if you look at 24 verse 22 there, again, it's David's promise to not do that, to not cut him off. Now if you look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, just a couple of chapters earlier, we have a very similar promise made to Jonathan by David. So 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, If I am still alive... Will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? That's Jonathan talking to David. If I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? 
You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the ground. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Jonathan made David vow against, or again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. And so David and Jonathan entered into a covenant where David promised not to cut off Jonathan's descendants. And so we have these two promises made, one made to Saul and one made to Jonathan. And they hinge on this idea of covenant loyalty. They entered into this agreement, we call them a covenant, and as part of that, loyalty was a key aspect of a covenant. That's exactly why we come to this passage today and why we find David do the things that he's going to do today because he's going to fulfill his promise that he made to both Saul and to Jonathan. So if you look back at 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now likely a lot of time has passed since Saul and Jonathan were killed because David asks, Are there any descendants left? So quite a bit of time, we don't know exactly how long it passed. Saul had a total of six sons, four of whom were dead by this time. Three of them were killed by the Philistines. Another one was murdered after Abner had set him up as a false king. And so at least four of Saul's sons had been killed out of the six. It's unclear whether David knew that the other two were still alive. They mentioned just briefly, I think one other time, there's another one called, or his name is Armoni, and then there's another Mephibosheth. It's Jonathan, or I mean um, Saul's son. Those two are still alive. They're mentioned only one time in this book, but it's unclear whether David knows whether they exist or not. So he asks his servant, any of Saul's descendants still alive? Jonathan had a single son, and his name was also Mephibosheth. While almost all English translations here suggest that David was looking to do kindness, you know what that word is because we've talked about it before. It's the Hebrew word hesed. We mention that all the time. It's actually more like loyalty or faithfulness. Some English translations translate it as kindness. Some translate it as loving kindness. It's, a, it's hard to take sometimes certain Hebrew words and put them into just a single English word because they encompass so much more. But this word is really more the idea of loyalty or faithfulness, fulfilling, fulfilling, or fulfilling a promise that's made. And so that's really what David has in mind here. He's saying... Are any of Saul's sons available? I want to fulfill my promise to be loyal, to be faithful to them. And it's not just to Jonathan or to um, Saul, but it's also, he says here, for Jonathan's sake. So as we look at the story here, we learn that um, Saul's one of Saul's servants comes up and says, "Yeah, there's somebody." Verse nine, David simply says that he's interested in showing loyalty himself, but you notice that in that passage it also says that he wants to show the loyalty or the kindness of God. That's also, I believe, verse 1 if I remember right. So, David wants to show the kindness or the loyalty not just of himself, but also the kindness or the loyalty of God. Now, the reason I think that's kind of interesting is because if you remember when we were back in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, Jonathan specifically asked David to show him the loyalty of God. Because he says both. Show me your loyalty, but reflect the loyalty of God. 
And so here, David repeats that exact same thing. I want to show loyalty, not just of my own, but I want to show the loyalty of God to Saul's descendants. That's going to come in key for us in a little bit. We see David throughout his life that one of the controlling forces behind his life was this love for God and devotion to him. Always trying to honor God. His desire to fulfill his promise to Saul and Jonathan was based on that understanding. He saw himself as an agent of God's loyalty and faithfulness. He believed that um, the Lord had made Saul king. And he believed that he should honor that in spite of who Saul ultimately became. And so David really sees his act of loyalty and faithfulness to Saul and his descendants as an act or as a representation, if you will, of God's loyalty and faithfulness. I want to think about that for just a moment. I want to tie that to to love. When we love people, what are we really doing? We're expressing our own love towards them, correct? Correct. But doesn't the scripture call us to go beyond that? Because when we love others, in spite of how we might feel about them, what we're really demonstrating is the love of God. That's what we're called to do. And it's no different here where David looks at himself and he says, you know, I'm I'm expected to demonstrate and to express the covenant loyalty of God. The same covenant loyalty that God extended to me, I'm now expected to extend to Jonathan. And it's no different than us when we're called to love our enemies and to love others. It's really an act of loving them like God has loved us and we're expressing the love of God. Think about how you behave and the things that you do when you're out and about. It should ultimately reflect Christ, should it not? So this is really no different. So we find here in the text that David actually learns that there's another descent. I'm going to go ahead and read this. Verse 2, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. This is one of Saul's servants. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the household of Saul to whom I may show the kindness or the loyalty of God? And Ziba said to the king, Well, there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And so we learn that there is this descendant. It's Jonathan's son. David probably didn't know about uh, Shibbethes here because David and Saul had parted significantly quite a few years before Saul, or before, um, I'm sorry, Jonathan and David had separated long before Jonathan and Saul were both killed. There's no indication that they had seen each other. Well, we find here that Meshibbethes is actually only five years old when he was crippled in his feet. At this point, he's a little bit older, but I meant when he gets crippled. And that was partly when he was being rescued and taken away. And so we're not really sure how old he is here, but we know that there was a period of time that David and, David and Jonathan had not seen each other before he was killed. And it was at some point during that period where his son was born, and so it's unlikely David ever met him or even knew that he existed. And so this may be the very first time that he even learns that there's really one descendant of Jonathan left. And so that's going to become the basis of our discussion today. We learn two things about this son. The first is that he's crippled in both feet. I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Second, I think it's 2 Samuel 4, is that right? Yeah. 2 Samuel chapter 4. 
Verse 4 says, Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So basically when Saul and Jonathan are ultimately killed, it says here that his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So like I said, there's looks like he was maybe about five years old when Jonathan was killed. And David hadn't seen him for quite a few years prior to that, so he was probably unlikely that he even knew that Mephibosheth existed. The second thing that we learn is that he's living in a house of a man named Maker, or Makur, in a city called Lodabar, which is significantly outside of Jerusalem. The exact location is unknown, but it was located somewhere in Gilead, east of the Jordan River. It's far away from his inheritance in his land. He wasn't living in Jonathan's property or around Jonathan's property or that of Saul. So he's away from his inheritance. He's living in somebody else's house and somebody else is caring for him. So what's David to do at this point? Well, David's going to fulfill his promise. Go back to chapter 9, verse 5. I'm going to read 5 through 8 for us here. Then King David sent and brought him to the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself and said, Mephibosheth, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore you to all the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Now his behavior, Mephibosheth's behavior here seems to indicate um, that he might have been a bit fearful. Knowing what we know about kings and what kings did to descendants, can you imagine? Here you are, basically outside Jerusalem. You were taken away. Um, You know what kings typically do, and all of a sudden that king finds you and ushers you into his presence. What do you suppose he thought was about to happen to him? Most likely he was fearful. David even says, don't fear. He wouldn't say that if he didn't suspect that He was fearful, but he basically bows down before him. He twice refers to himself as David's servant. He refers to himself as a dead dog, meaning worthless. And so he comes before David with some fear and some trepidation. And David says, don't fear. Even refers to him by name. And then he promises him three things. The first promise that he makes to Mephibosheth here on behalf of his father Jonathan, he says this, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness or loyalty to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. So the first promise that David makes is one of loyalty or faithfulness to him on behalf of the promises he had made to Jonathan and to Saul. That was pretty much true for the rest of David's life here. There's one time where it was a bit challenged, um, this servant Ziba that's here, he goes out to meet David at one point. He was a faithful man for the most part, but there's some things there that may be some self-interest. And there's a passage where he goes out to meet David. We'll get to it later on in our study. And when David meets him, he's like, well, where, where's Mephibosheth? Why didn't he come out too? And Ziba basically says, well, because he's at home plotting to take you over. So David trusts him and basically says, oh. So he basically says, okay, everything I gave to Mephibosheth, you get it's yours. 
David finds out a little bit later that that wasn't at all true. Um, so what he basically does is he gives half the inheritance back to Mephibosheth. And the reason he probably did that was because a king's oath, it's hard to retract that. And so and, and Ziba, a little bit of self-interest there, had been faithful in taking care of Mephibosheth. So David basically returns half of the inheritance back to Mephibosheth. So there's only one time where David's loyalty has been challenged with Mephibosheth. But for the most part, he lives up to his promise here to be faithful to him. So the first promise that we see him make here is that he will remain loyal to him. The second promise is that he restores the inheritance to Mephibosheth. Look at verse 7 again. He says, And I will restore to you the land of your grandfather Saul. I will restore to you the land of your grandfather Saul. Now land, if you remember, is a primary possession and inheritance for every Israelite. There were laws in the Old Testament dictating what you could and could not do with your land. If you got yourself in some massive debt and you had to sell your land, seven years later it had to be returned back to your to your family. And so land was the key primary possession. I was actually watching, um, there's a new series on television, uh, it's just a three-night three series on the History Channel about George Washington. It's three two-hour segments. I think I might have mentioned it last week. Um, I watched the first or the first episode last night. And it was interesting because they talked about George Washington and how um, at that time period, land was the thing you wanted to own. That was your wealth and your inheritance. You might not have anything else, but you wanted land. And so George Washington went from owning, I think, 2,000 acres that he inherited as part of his family to where he grew it to 60,000 acres of land at one point. And it was much the same way with Israel in the sense that land was everything to them. And so the fact that Meshibosheth has lost all of his land was a pretty big deal. He had no inheritance anymore, had nothing to take care of himself. And so David promises to restore that to him and gives him all of Saul's land back. So he not only restored his inheritance, but now he provided a means of support. Remember, he's hanging out with some other dude's family, living in his house being taken care of. He's crippled. He can't walk. He can't farm. He can't do anything. But at least now he's got a means of supporting his family. He's got some inheritance that's been returned to him. The third and final promise that David makes to him is now um, that he would provide for Mephibosheth as well. Look at verse... uh, What is it here? Verse 7, I believe. Yep, chapter 9, verse 7. David said, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness or loyalty for the sake of your father Jonathan and restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Basically, he's made David part of his own family. He's now going to allow him to come in and be able to eat with him. He'll care for him. He'll provide for him. On top of the fact that he's now given him back his land. But he also made provisions for him here in terms of taking care of him outside of just serving him at his own table. Look at what happens in the following verses. Verse 8, again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then King Saul, or then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So basically, David said that these 36 individuals would now care for Meshibosheth. Oh, I keep slaughtering his name, don't I? 
Mephibosheth by cultivating the land for him. In other words, they're going to farm the land for him. Why? Because he can't do it himself. So David has not only gone beyond just allowing him to now eat in his house, but he's now got men working the fields for him and making provision for him and his family. Taking care of the land, something he could not do for himself. They're to cultivate the land, they're to bring in the produce for him. We find out that in verses 11 and 13, a little bit later, um, that this is ultimately to provide for his household. So David makes these three promises to Mephibosheth, all based on what he had promised to Jonathan. Well, what's interesting to me about these, and I hinted at this when we started, was that these same three promises are what we find in Christ. And it makes sense to us because, again, David is a type of Christ, an example. It's supposed to be a foreshadowing. So I'm going to go ahead and we're going to just look at those. I'm going to be giving you a lot of scripture passages to focus on this. So we'll be flipping around a lot. The first promise we said was this idea of loyalty or faithfulness. So the, David had promised that he would be faithful to Saul's or to Jonathan's son. We see the exact same promise from our Father and from Christ, do we not? First Thessalonians chapter five. Let's go and look at some of these. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse twenty three. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and your soul and body be preserved complete without any blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Notice what he says there. Having the Lord sanctify us, set us aside, make us holy, is no way to say that. And may he preserve your spirit and your soul and your body perfectly. That's the word complete without blame, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, and he'll faithful to do, he's faithful to do it. He will bring it to pass. That's God's promise to us. What about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. He says, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. He's promised us that he will be faithful in protecting us from our enemy. How about 1 Corinthians 1 9? You're going to go backwards a little bit. 1 Corinthians 1 9. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the Lord is faithful. One last one, I'll just read this one. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says this It's a trustworthy statement. For we died with him, meaning with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And what that means there is that we just, we struggle, we don't always, um, under persecution, um, stand up very well. But he says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. So just in these four verses alone, and the New Testament is filled with, with such statements, one of the things the Lord promises us is that He will be faithful to us. Even when we struggle, even when we stumble, even when we fall, 
even when we sin, the Lord is faithful to us. That's what David reflected to Jonathan's son. What about the second promise? David had promised that he would return the inheritance back to Mephibosheth. I don't find it all that striking then that the Lord promises us an inheritance as well. How about we turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose who works, or his purpose according to who works all things according to the counsel of his will. To that end, that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. But we've been given the Holy Spirit as a seal of our inheritance that we have. Colossians chapter 3. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So we will receive inheritance from Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. (coughs) Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 says this, For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgression that we committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the uh, eternal inheritance. One last one, 2 Peter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance, inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Again, the scriptures are filled with this concept of the inheritance we receive as God's children, including eternal life, resurrection, life forever with Christ. And so just like David's promise back to Mephibosheth, returning his inheritance to him, we've been promised an inheritance as well because of our relationship with Christ. The last promise, David's promise of provision for him, is again another promise that we've received from Jesus Christ and the Father. Look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Starting in verse 22. This is Jesus' promises to the disciples. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? 
And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? You men of little faith. What's the Lord teaching the disciples there? The Lord will take care of them. The Lord will provide for them. Let's turn to just one other one. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. This will be the last one for us. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. very short one. He says, My God will supply all your needs according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Very simple statement. Question is, do you believe it? The Lord will supply all your needs. One other, I say minor comparison. I find it interesting that David, as a type of Christ, mentions to Mephibosheth that as part of his provision, he will forever sit at the table of David. Does that sound like something Christ has promised us as well? Isn't that remarkable? It's neat to be able to look into the Old Testament and to see these things and how they're reflective of Christ today and our relationship with him. I think I've told you this before, there's this trend or this um, movement, if you will, within evangelical circles to sort of distance ourselves from the Old Testament. There are many who have said that the Old Testament truly isn't messianic in nature even. And um, there's some fairly popular Christian teachers and, and Christian leaders that have adopted that position. And it's hard when you come to passages like this with David where you see these things reflected in David. It's awfully hard to say, but how does that not represent Christ? You know, we're told in the New Testament that the Old Testament was a tutor for one purpose, to lead us to Christ, which means in order to do that, Christ must be reflected in the Old Testament. And he's not only talked about, but he is reflected, and we see that today with the story of Mephibosheth. David offers him his covenant loyalty. Under Jesus Christ, we are now in a covenant, the new covenant with him, and he promises to be faithful to us. Romans chapter 8 tells us that nothing can take us out of his hands. He will always be faithful to us. One of the passages we read from Timothy today says that even when we are not faithful, he is faithful because he can't deny himself. That's the God that we serve. And so we see that reflected in David as a type of Christ. God has promised to also be faithful to us. We also see that we've got an inheritance just like David. That's what's waiting for us. We're told that when we see Christ, we will receive the inheritance as a son and a daughter of Christ. Much like you would as adults pass on your inheritance, whatever left of it, to your children. It's no different for us. And so David reflects that as well with Mephibosheth, simply as a foreshadowing of the fact that we also have an inheritance in Christ ourselves. That's what we get to look forward to. And then lastly, that while we're still here, 
just like David promised to make provision for Mephibosheth, to care for him out of his own resources, not only just returning the inheritance to him, but also providing for him himself. It's just a reflection of Christ in us. We have nothing to fear because he promises us he'll meet our needs. Now, that doesn't mean we won't be hungry sometimes. Even the Apostle Paul struggled, but he was always satisfied. God always took care of his needs, and God will always take care of our needs as well. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up with that, but it's a pretty amazing picture. I love seeing how David himself, even in his imperfections sometimes, reflects Christ and teaches us about Christ, about the gospel, and what we can expect with our relationship with him. Amen?